HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program has been brought to you by Bonnie Plants. BonniePlants.com I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, live from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You, of course, are listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. Off air, I am the executive director of the Heritage Radio Network. On air, on The Farm Report every week, we talk about the nitty-gritty of food production, and today is no different. We are joined on the line uh, by Carrie Balcom. Carrie is the executive director of the American Grassfed Association, and she's calling in from Denver, Colorado. Carrie, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's a it's a lovely uh, snowy day here in Colorado. <laughs> snowy? Oh man. <laughs> um, well, we are kicking off this week a series that we're going to do in collaboration with Slow Food USA. We're getting ready for the upcoming. Slow Meat Conference, which is happening June 4th through 6th out in Denver. Um, So we'll get a chance to hang with you on your home turf then. Um, But in the meantime, I thought it would be great to kick off the series with you and get get a sense of, um, you know, what folks are thinking about in the meat space. But probably we should start by giving folks a little bit more background information on the American Grass-Fed Association. So if you can give us just a, a brief rundown of the, the work that your organization pursues and, and, and a touch of history on how, how you got here. Well, thanks. We, uh, we started in 2003 when the uh, USDA was going to put a label claim in the Federal Registry about grass-fed. It's, it's what you can put on your package as far as what, what you're putting in your product. And um, we weren't... Um, we weren't really sure that they were going to be genuine to what we believed a grass-fed product was. So it was a group of producers. We met in 2003 here in Denver, and um, we wanted the label claim to be 100% forage with no antibiotics, no hormones, and no confinement. So we worked with the USDA um, until 2007 trying to get them to do that label claim, and um, they decided to just... Uh, put in the label claim what the animal eats, not where it eats or antibiotics or hormones. 
So we asked them if we could do our own third-party certified program, and they said yes, as long as it met or exceeded their their standards, which of course ours do. So that was in 2007, and we started certifying in uh, for third-party grass-fed program in 2009. Once we got everything done, and we're, it brings us up to today, where we have the third-party certified grass-fed program, which is a label claim, and it means no antibiotics, no hormones, uh, 100% forage-based diet, and no confinement, which was uh, what we believe uh, the consumer wants to believe and wants to know when they buy a product in the store that says it's grass-fed. Yeah, so that in a nutshell. That in a nutshell is it. Well, so now you were, you know, prior to your work with AGA, were working as a, a culinary instructor at the Metropolitan State College of Denver. So, how did you get engaged in the beef uh, and grass-fed conversation? And I guess maybe we should clarify here when we're talking about grass-fed. You guys are focused specifically on ruminants. So, maybe for folks who aren't familiar, can you give us a sense of what that includes and what it doesn't? Sure. Well, ruminant animals are, are multi-chambered. Uh, they have one stomach, but it has many chambers, several chambers in it. Um, <clears throat> so that's beef, bison, lamb, and goat for now. We are multi-species. We are working on other standards at the time. We do have producers who do have those those animals on their farms, but we don't have any standards for them as of yet. Um, how I got involved was that uh, because of my culinary, um, I was raised on a, on a ranch in South Florida. So it, it was a it was a wonderful, um, interesting journey to get to where I am today, but my background was rural America. Um, my family still ranches in South Florida. So uh, because of my culinary background, the foresight of the, the people that started AGA wanted to bring the consumer and the culinary um, community in when they started this to have not just a producer group, but we could we could reach out to chefs and people who were, to, were working with food and also the consumers. So they invited me because of my, my background with, with the ranching and also with food. And also I was very much involved at that time and still am with Slow Food USA and here in Denver, and it's been a very dynamic chapter uh, with, with Slow Food. So we all went to the meeting, and that's, that did it as well. Like anything, you know, I feel like you get a, a bunch of smart, interesting people around a dinner table and, and stuff just happens. Um, I want to hear more. I've I've never met or heard of anyone talk about ranching in South Florida. Um, is, is that just because uh, it's, a, it's a small part of the agricultural makeup of the state or is it just something that we don't get to hear about uh, further here in the north? Or, or what does it mean to be a rancher in South Florida? I'm just curious. Well, at one time, and um, I don't know the statistics now, but at one time there were more cattle in Florida than there were in Texas. Um, Florida was a dropping-off point for cattle uh, going to Central and South America, and the old uh, the old docks where the cattle uh, barges and boats came in are still there. Um, my family's history was that they came to Florida on a cattle boat from Spain on the way to Cuba. So Florida is a very rich and uh, dynamic uh, cattle industry. And uh, people seem to think that it's all beaches and 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 uh, Disneyland, but it's or Disney World. But uh, it's it's beautiful country. It's citrus. It's uh, it's plantations. You know, with with perennial plantings and and cattle fit in very nicely with grazing. And and uh, it's rough country. There's there's things that are that are um, that are not conducive. There's water. There's mosquitoes. There's bugs and that kind of thing. But uh, it's been around for a long, long time, and it's it's a great and, and wonderful history. Wow, that is something I'm definitely going to be looking a little bit more into because that was not on my radar at all. 
Well, yeah. you know, grass-fed is a term that I feel like in, in 2015, folks, um, you know, have almost, by and large, if you're interested in food, have heard of, and I would say, you know, a good percentage of those have a, a pretty strong sense of what it means to be grass-fed. But back in, in 2003, uh, you know, as you guys were looking at developing the criteria for your certification, I feel like the, the grass-fed conversation was a lot different. And maybe you can kind of, you know, bring us a little bit back in time and talk about what the grass-fed landscape was looking like when you got started and why it was important to develop a designation like this in the first place. Well, and you'll hear the ter- you'll hear this uh, uh, frequently, is that all animals are grass-fed, and then you hear the dot, 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 until they're not. And so ruminant animals, cattle, beef, bison, goats, um, are raised, are born on pasture. The majority of them are born on pasture and kept there for a certain period of time and then trucked off to feedlots around the country to be confined, fed, and, and, uh, and then harvested for, for meat. So um, we had to differentiate that the animals that we're talking about are never put into confinement feeding operations. They're never given grain, which is a... It, and it gets pretty complicated. I'll try and, and make it, is it, what, grain is not something that a ruminant animal is designed to eat. They're designed to eat forage or grass or cellulose, which turns into energy for them. And it's, it's a great system and it works very well. But you introduce grains in, in, in large amounts and it makes the animals acidic and gives them all kinds of, can lead to disease and, and make them sick. Carrie, can so I just, want, can I jump in yeah, there sure. real quick? Cause I feel like, you know, as I'm sitting here listening to you, you know, I, I think that I think I know the difference between grain and grass, but I, but I want to make sure that I, I do. I mean, can grain and grass be different parts of the same plant? Um, th- does that make sense? Like, I, I know that like when cows are, are grazing on pasture, or other ruminant animals are grazing on pasture, you know, they're, they're you know, I think of a kind of like lush green fields um, and grain as something different. But but not, as I'm sitting here, I'm like, maybe I actually don't understand the difference between grain and grass plant as much as I thought I did. Does that make sense? Well, the problem, yeah, the difference is that when we're talking about feeding grain, we're actually giving the animal something to eat rather than allowing it to graze. Okay. Does that, does that make sense? And also, the lush green pastures, you do have seed heads and things on, in, in the pasture that could be, it, yes, but it's, it's the difference in the way the animal's fed and, what, and allowing the animals to eat what it's designed to eat and then feeding something that it's not designed to eat. So, and then also not, in, not in allowing it to graze in the pasture and holding it in a, in a small area and confined with other animals where it doesn't have grass to, for, to forage on. Right. And then... The, I mean, because the, like the other component and something I feel like we, we hear uh, and, and think about a lot here in the Northeast and obviously um, is a concern for you guys, too. As you mentioned, it is snowing today in April. Um, it is that, you know, there's not pasture year round. Um, so I, I hopefully can you kind of explain, like, what do we think of as kind of grass in the winter months? Well, <clears throat> Absolutely, and animals have been domesticated animals before we domesticated them. Um, survived on being able to uh, have things that they they knew how to eat. And what we do now, and what 
uh, domesticated animals eat on, and farmers do, is they stockpile forages. And if you go by ranches and you, you or farms and you're driving down the highway and you see these big bales of hay or silage or baleage, these farmers put up um, uh, things for these folks, these animals to eat during the winter months. And so you'll, like I say, especially here in Colorado, which I know a little bit more about, is that you'll you'll see where farmers will uh, take a tractor and drag an open area and put hay out so that the animals can, can forage on that. So it's not that the animals are left to their own devices. These animals are very well managed. Okay. Yeah, that that's helpful. So sorry, I just wanted to jump in there because I was having this like belated glimpse of the obvious where I'm like, oh, I I think I know what I'm, I'm hearing here, but actually I want to make sure. So um, you were kind of uh, taking us through, you know, why it was important to develop a certification um, for grass-fed animals in particular and kind of the landscape around 2003, 4, 5, as you guys were deciding what were the correct criteria. Well, when uh, when the USDA came out with their label claims, this, and it, when, when folks go into the grocery store and they see a, a, a package that says grass-fed on it, we wanted them to understand that if it had our label on it, that it was what we believed and what consumer Consumers Union believes the consumer wants to, to know that that animal was raised without confinement, without antibiotics, without hormones, and on a forage-based diet. The USDA's uh, grass-fed label claim says that it only addresses what the animal eats, not where it's been fed or, or antibiotics or hormones. So from a consumer perspective, we wanted that to be genuine. From a rancher's perspective, we wanted people who were doing that to be able to get their uh, their premium in the marketplace, so that they weren't competing with people who were just slapping grass-fed on their label and and not not doing the same chores because it takes longer. You have to hold the animals um, about another year. You've got more imp- uh, more time with that animal, so you're you're doing a lot more. You're not using antibiotics. You're not using anything to pump the animals up to make them gain faster. So it's a, it's a lot more time investment, and you're holding them on pastures, so you're having to maintain your pastures. So that's a premium, and we wanted the, the consumer to know that these people that have this label on, that have our, our certification, are doing it right, and they are being inspected every year, and they are they are signing you know uh, agreements that yes we are doing this so that was very important to us that we wanted the consumer to be aware of that and we also wanted the producers to get the premium for that and not have to fight for it in the marketplace against people who aren't and label claims that that weren't quite as uh, stringent as ours are so so to be clear i can get a you if i am a you know let's say a beef farmer and i want the usda grass-fed label i essentially can raise my animals in confinement i can uh you know provide them with subtherapeutic uh, antibiotics but as long as i'm bringing them hay or other kind of grass-based forage i can call my animals grass-fed yes ma'am okay and you know, because you guys were in uh, conversation with the USDA as they are looking to establish their criteria, what do you think were their reasons or where did the pressure come from to have them not include these other kind of animal welfare criteria in their labeling procedure? What was their argument for for not including it or what's your understanding of that? I'm not, and I, I would be clairvoyant if I knew all of the ins and outs of that. Um, it was just, it was just. They came to our conference in 2006, and and we discussed it with them, and we got um, we got a lot of information from them. We tried to make them understand that we were, but 
their final thing to us was, we're only going to address what the animal eats, not where it's fed or how or how it's raised. Um, we're going to uh, bring out other label claims that will address those things. So it was more of a tiered pr- approach to their labeling system, which we felt was disingenuous to the consumer because we thought that the grass fed should mean all of those things, and they disagreed with it. So. The other thing that is part of your certification process is looking at origin. Um, and, and I wondered, you know, it's that the livestock, um, I thought it was interesting in the way it was worded on your site is that, that, that livestock was raised on an American family farm and that it's born and raised in the U.S. And I think born and raised in the U.S., I, I understand, um, but I'm wondering what you meant by an American family farm or if that was... I don't know. I, I, that 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 was kind of a sticky point for me. Well, um, it gets it gets pretty involved, and I'm happy to discuss it at length with you. But it's um, the country of origin labeling for food has been in the in the uh, on our minds for many 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 years. It was passed years ago, and it's been um, in contention for many years. But we believe, and I'm hoping that the consumer wants to know that they're supporting. American family farms and farmers, and with when we say that those animals are born and raised on American family farms, that they're not being raised in other countries and brought in, um, and we're not saying that people who raise their animals somewhere else, but we're trying to support the guy down the street, the farmer down the street, uh, keeping the rural landscapes. So we have it in our in our certification program that in order to be have the, the little green four blade grass logo on your package you have to certify we certify that those animals are born and raised in american on american family farms um, and we're trying to support our economies and our rural economies and keep people working on farms in processing in distribution um, and having those animals um, get the premium in the marketplace right but i could be you know a, a chinese citizen or a mexican citizen who is like legal to work in the states and as long as my livestock were born and raised here I could get a AGA certification absolutely okay cool that that was what I was yeah one I was more like I'm like oh I I wonder if this means that doesn't really make sense um okay cool so the as you know I I totally get the 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 lack of clairvoyance around the USDA and their decision-making process. I, too, wish I I had some more insight into some of those decisions. But um, maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, for AGA, um, what are there other things on the table as you were looking at kind of the criteria for 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 your certification process? Um, You know, how did you know where to kind of draw the line? And it looks like we lost you. So we're going to take just a, a short station break, and we'll get Carrie back on the line. Hang tight. We will be right back.
Could an app be the answer to a better garden? Absolutely. It's the new free app, Homegrown with Bonnie Plants. Note, track, and photograph your garden's progress. Personalize your weather and reminders. Get variety info, grow guides, hands-free dictation, and more. The Homegrown with Bonnie Plants app. The sharpest tool in your garden. Download it free on the App Store. Hello, this is Mark Ladner from Del Posto, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. And we are back. Of course, you're tuned into the Farm Report. We are on the line with Carrie Balcom. Uh, she is the executive director of the American Grass-Fed Association. And Carrie, welcome back. Um, we, you know, before we we went to a, a quick station break, um, we we were. I was asking a little bit about. Um, when you guys were kind of deciding on the criteria that you would include in your certification process, um, you know, were there other things that kind of came up that you thought about including and ended up not choosing? And, and just curious, like, how you guys, you know, decided where to draw the line? Well, the, the, um, the, the one great thing about AGA and witness formation is that the bulk of our, our um, certification process and standards process are producers. We do have... Uh, researchers and scientists that, of course, we call on uh, for that kind of thing, um, for information. But it's all producers. So everything that we did was based on production by people who are actually raising grass-fed. It wasn't a bunch of people that don't know anything about it or or, uh, they're not not boots on the ground, if you want to, so to speak. So as far as things that we we wanted to put in there, no... um, we made it very um, user-friendly for the producer. Um, we about we allowed um, some supplementation, like you with with uh, silage, baleage, and, and haylage. Those are the things that you see we, we talked about earlier. So um, there, as, as science evolves about the gut of the rumen, ruminant animal, um, we we look at things very closely. But it's always done from a producer's point of view. And then we bring in the scientists and say, will this work? So that's very important to us, and we will always do that, that the the, um, the farmers and the ranchers that we work with know that the standards that they're working with are, be- are being written and, and uh, reviewed by people who are, know what they're talking about. Yeah, I know that you, ha- I saw, of course, you know, Will Harris of White Oak Pasture, who's been a longtime supporter of the network, is is part of your um, main kind of decision-making team, which is super exciting to see, of course. Well, um, so, you know, you decide in, in 2003 that there's a need to designate these um, kind of animal welfare and animal pr- production practices, um, and you go through the trouble of kind of convening uh, a group of leaders in the industry and, and figuring out what the criteria is going to be. And then, of course, there's elements of, you know, designing the certification process and figuring out what that's going to, you know, mean and look like and how long it will be and the, you know, reg- regulatory environment for that. But I'm wondering, um, you know, it's kind of like one of those, like, if you build it, they will come scenarios. Was there kind of an immediate response from producers who were growing animals um, in, in this way? Um, were, were people knocking on your doors for the certification? I mean, how does one kind of build a label that has power? I feel so often um, in the food world, you know, there's a lot of words that are tossed around 
some mean things, others don't mean things. And, you know, you guys were definitely looking to put a very um, strict and transparent thing into place. But, um, you know, how do you kind of start building that reputation and, and how do producers and or kind of consumers start knowing to kind of look for that and ask for that? And, and what was that process like? How, how fast or slow did it happen? And is it happening? Well, it, it is happening. Um, it's hard to it's hard to um, quantify it. We started in 2003 with about a dozen members, and uh, so we've we, we've um, we've we've definitely gotten bigger since then. <laughs> we're up about you know we're we're way up there now, and I, I don't have the figures in front of me. I apologize, and I'll, I didn't ask the, the the database person for them this morning. I guess I should have coming into this call. But when you have people who um, and if you look at our board of directors and if you look at their producer members on our our website, and um, it, quite frankly, we built very organically. We didn't have a lot of money. We don't have a lot of money. We work very closely with producers. We don't uh, we don't charge a lot of money for the certification because we don't want to put that burden on the producer to have to maintain a very high, expensive um, auditing process. So it's all very uh, very um, organic growth. But when you have producers um, like Will Harris, like the Davises and, and the, all these producers in, in Texas and, and the Wisnets in, in uh, Missouri and uh, Homegrown Meats in California and John Whiteside in Virginia, and I'm, I'm just naming a few off the top of my head because they were, came across my desk yesterday, and, and my board of directors and, and uh, Tomcat Ranch in California. And there, it, we built it like the old, and I can't remember the, the, the name of the, the, the um uh, shampoo that w- when you tell two friends and two friends and it kept growing and growing. Oh and right, growing. right, yeah. <laughs> and I think I think the greatest thing, and this kind of brings it to slow, is that um, we we got very involved with slow food and we put it out to those consumers and those consumers now know what it means when they see grass fed on a label and it doesn't have our sticker on it, and they're starting to ask those questions. They started asking those questions. And that has brought the supply side to us to say, where can we get this? And their meat producer, meat meat buyers, are now saying, okay, we know the difference. Now, where can we get this? So, we that's how we did it. We're and we're doing it pretty organically and without a lot of media coverage. And, and we're grateful for for what you're doing today. But that's that's how it started. And quite frankly, our meeting in 2006 when. The USDA came out is that within one week we put it out to Slow Food USA, and in one weekend we got 19,000 comments into the into the USDA from from Slow and, and concerned people because they put it out to their network. So that that was very powerful. Wow, wow, that is great to hear. So, you know, obviously um, looking to convene uh, in, in early June with um, people all in all different kind of walks of the meat. Um, production and, um, you know, marketing and consumers and, and kind of having a, a meeting of the minds to talk about how do we um, extricate ourselves from the the current kind of meat culture in the United States. And I'm wondering, like, for you, um, you know, you're looking at this really special opportunity to talk to a lot of influencers all in one space. Um, for you personally, and then, of course, for your organization, um, maybe these are the same things, maybe they're a little bit different. Um, you know, what are your kind of hopes for that conference, and, and why is it important to, to do conferences like this? What, um, you know, what would success look like? Gosh, um, it's, 
we've got to get past the hype and the hyperbole around marketing uh, of meat. And the consumer, the informed consumer, which we talk about a lot because American consumers um, are really smart and savvy, and they're starting to, to be even more so with reading labels, and they're starting to question um, those those cute little package packages that have cute little red farmhouses on them in the in the meat market, and they're starting to ask questions. And also in the supply chain, those meat managers in those grocery stores, and in the in the at the farmers markets and stuff are starting to ask the questions because when that meat's delivered to the back door of the restaurant or to the grocery store, the meat managers are starting to say. Where is this coming from? Because for so many years, there wasn't that sense of transparency. It was just they picked up the phone and ordered certain amounts of pounds of this and certain amounts of pounds of that, and that's how that got to, to the store. And those meat managers and those meat people in the, in the supply chain are very important, and they're, they're, they're making the change as well. And we're very, very thrilled that we get lots of calls from people saying, tell me about this, educate me about this. So I think the, the, uh, it's the conference in June with having that conversation. They're starting to question everything, and I think we should. So that's where that's coming from. And, again, I, I can't say enough great things about the way that Slow just picked up the gauntlet and helped us, helped those family farms. And um, they go to the farmer's market, and they question the people that are, that are selling meat at the farmer's market. And the, the, uh, the uh, growth of community-supported agriculture, CSAs, has been great because they're, they're buying directly from farms. And that's been very important and very powerful, and people are taking notice, and you read about it a lot. Well, so, I mean, that's like the other thing I think it's always interesting to me to speak to people who are in a position like yours where you are, you know, you also have this direct line to producers. You're able to kind of hear from them, um, you know, what's working, what's not working, kind of like the struggles, the frustrations. I wonder if you can give us um, some kind of broad strokes uh, about what you're hearing from your farmers, um, what are their kind of primary areas of concern? Is it, you know, um, farmland conservation? Is it access to market? Is it processing or slaughterhouses? I mean, what are the kind of key issues? And and are they different in different parts of the country? Well, you you touched on a really great one, and thank you for bringing it up, is processing, um, because... um, you can raise the greatest animals in the world for uh, for the production of food, and but if you can't get it to market, that's you're, you're stymied. So uh, processing is really critical, and something we're working on very, very diligently um, to allow um, small family farms to have places to take their animals. Because the large, the consolidation of processing in the United States is, is has been cut over the last twenty twenty five years um, has gotten to the point that these big plants. Um, produce most of the meat for, in this country. So these smaller plants, we're working very hard to either keep them open or get them open so that these farmers can take uh, smaller amounts of animals in. So that's critical. Um, the other thing is farmers want to farm. And so in helping them develop supply chains or uh, it's, and it's very important so that people can help them distribute their food to market their food and that kind of thing and do it in a genuine way. So that's very important, and not and take part of the pie, but not all of the pie, so that these farmers can get their premium in the marketplace as well. Because it, it, it's hard; those marketing jobs take time, energy, and effort. And the farmer needs to be on the farm to maintain the, the integrity of what he's do, what he or she is doing. So we need that supply that supply chain to to understand that. 
Well, and that marketing yeah. kind of brings up brings up another thing that we have to touch on when we're talking about grass fed because I think bottom line is you know consumers I feel like by and large when they know that there is an opportunity to kind of quote unquote like do the right thing and it's within their means um, and their their life to kind of access that um, you know they still need to enjoy the the final product you know ultimately the beef the goat, you know, it still has to taste good. Um, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit about kind of like taste and, and flavor and and kind of what you're getting in a grass-fed animal that you're not going to get in a grain-fed or a grain-finished animal. Well, it's um, the taste is, is interesting because for years people say it doesn't taste it doesn't taste the same. And my my point was always, well, thank you, that <laughs> you should taste the difference in the meat. It's it's a taste that's closer to the earth. Um, there's a term out there called terroir, and it's, it's, um, it's you know, what the animal is eating is what you should be be tasting. So whatever grasses and, and waters and, and all of the things that are, that are in the soils that, that animals been been raised on should come through in the product. Um, it is a little bit um, more dense. It's not as you can't cut it with a butter knife or, or a fork. In a lot of cases, um, you should be able to enjoy it. It, it chews a little better. It's a little beefier um, and or or denser. So, and I think that the American consumer is now realizing that it shouldn't be as it should taste different, and there should be variations in it. And something that we've said from a, for a long time, and I've heard this from a lot of people, is that we'd like the meat case to look more like the seafood case or the cheese case. There should be variations. There should be breed differences. There should be um, um, geographic differences. There should be seasonal differences in things. Uh, when you go to the meat case, instead of just ordering a pound of this or a pound of that, Tell me what what I'm buying, and that's where the meat buyers come in because they're starting to realize it. And they're, I, from what I hear and from the people that I talk to when I, when I have a chance to, is that they're excited about changing the quality and the and the the the, um, the, the change in the in the meat case too, because it, it's really nice to have that that variety in the meat case. And, and what do you say, because I'm sure this question comes up for you, we're like, oh, well, Carrie, that's all well and good. And, of course, you know, we want to raise animals out on pasture. But, you know, there's a lot of hungry people, and we need to feed the world. Well, um, we need to let, and this is something that I say, and I hope everybody understands it, is that as far as feeding the world, we need to give the world the tools to feed itself. And it means that we the we can't supply enough food to feed everyone we have to we have to move the, the centralization of food production and uh, it, it, into other countries to give them the tools to to grow and and produce food closer to where they live rather than it, trucking it or importing it exporting excuse me exporting it to other places and um, it, I that's a heady question, and that's that's I, that's a tough one. Yeah, I know, I know. I'm sorry, I don't mean to put you on the spot. I just feel like it's the that's thing okay. that that always gets <laughs> that always you know people are always throwing that back, and I, and I think to me, you know, there is like a moment where, um, you know, in my evolution and kind of thinking about this question and thinking about it as it applies to the different spaces that my world touches on. Um, I can't help but kind of keep coming back to the same place. It's like, I, I just think that's, that's the wrong 
question. It's it's not that that like you're already making so many assumptions when you start from that space that like mm-hmm. um you know our conversation needs to kind of go back in time and and start a little bit sooner. I I read this um amazing uh quote the other day um uh, where where somebody uh turned to someone else and asked um you know when do you begin raising a child? And um the the answer was, you know, it's probably about a hundred years or so before the child is born, because ultimately, it's at that point that you're starting to shape the world and the environment that the child is going to get live, going to be able to live in. So, in a, in a way, we're just kind of like currently acting as as stewards for for future generations, and I, that that has given me a lot to chew on in the last couple of days. And I think that there's a real kind of relation between the answer to that question. And the answer to, you know, how are we going to feed the world? And um, I'm really looking forward to getting a chance to say hello in person out in June. I know if folks want to find out more about your work, they can visit the website, which is just um, AmericanGrassFed.org. What is the best way for them to support your work and your organization? Well, read labels, ask questions, um, buy from people, buy from family farms and farmers who are certified by us. That's the best thing you can do. Um, it, it puts it right on the ground. It puts you, um, if you puts you in touch with with people in your area. Um, that's that's the important thing. Is that when we started in 2003, there weren't markets for these people with their animals, so they only had one market to send them to, and that was the the cow calf operation where the cows were kept and the calves were sent off to market to be put into feedlots. Um, and now these people are able to to maintain and sell those things directly, and they get better premiums for their products. So read the labels, ask the questions. We're here as a resource to help you, guide you through that process. So that's the best thing to do, um, and know the difference and understand the difference and understand that you are supporting your your country and, and your your farmers, and, and we're going to try and make that happen so that we're not going to be caught in a situation where we're going to be dependent on other people to raise our food for us. Well, and, uh, that's, I, think, I think that's really important. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Carrie, thank you so much for taking some time to, to speak with us today. It was really uh, interesting, and I hope we'll get a chance to talk more soon. Well, I'll see you all at Slow Meat in June, and, and thanks a lot for the time today, and I really appreciate you you uh, you asking the hard questions. <laughs> <laughs> for folks who want to follow more of their work, definitely check out that website. You can find them on Twitter at AGA. You can find Carrie at Carrie Balcom. Um, want to give a big shout-out to Megan Larmer from Slow Food USA, who's helping me co-produce this series. We're going to be exploring over the next couple of weeks, um, the meat industry from a variety of perspectives. We'll be speaking with folks um, from the Food Chain Alliance, um, from Aspire, looking at kind of crickets and and the future of different types of proteins. Um, Sarah Grady from up at Glenwood, Fleischer's here in Brooklyn, the NRDC. Stay tuned. Lots of great stuff in the coming weeks on that. If you want to find out more about the conference, check out slowfoodusa.org. Um, also just while we're on the topic of meat and meat matters, want to give a shout out for our friends at chefs collaborative who are holding a great event here on April 28th in the city. Um, headliner is the one and only Rick Bayless. So definitely check that out. You can visit them at www.chefscollaborative.org for more information. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of the farm report. This episode, like all 39 of our weekly shows is available for free Um, On our website, um, speaking of our website, 
If you don't know, we are in the midst of a Kickstarter campaign and we need your help. Um, definitely click the link on our website, uh, head over, watch the great video we put together. We are working to build you a brand new website so we can bring you more of the program you've come to, to count on us for in a way that's easier to find and more exciting. There's lots to explore. Uh, we go over a lot of the great details and I hope um, lay out a pretty compelling case on our Kickstarter page. You know, kick us a few bucks, five bucks, 20 bucks, 75 bucks if you want to get one of the awesome t-shirts, lots of great prizes there. So visit us at www.heritageradionetwork.org. Check out the site. You'll immediately understand why we need to build a new one and then click the banner on the right and become a backer today. Thanks so much for listening. Stay tuned in. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.